0: Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters, On today's program, we'll get into the spirit with a look at a local a cappella group that's presenting a series of holiday concerts. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review a new Jane Austen-inspired Christmas play. Later, I'll take you with me behind the scenes of a local Miracle on 34th Street radio play. And I'll talk to local author and cartoonist Sophie Lucido Johnson about her unique approach to writing a memoir. That's all coming up. Thanks for making some time for Arts and Culture this morning. These are the sounds of Chicago Acapella. The professional singing group has been entertaining Chicago area audiences since 1993. The Acapella Ensemble is celebrating the season with a series of holiday concerts this month. Later today, the group will present a Hanukkah concert and will And next weekend, Chicago Acapella will present the latest version of its annual Holidays Acapella program in Naperville and Evanston.
1: Since you have some traditions built in, they've been doing these these concerts for a long time. My first task is to decide, okay, how much familiar music am I going to include? This is Benjamin
0: Rivera, Chicago Acapella's guest music director for this year's Holidays Acapella program.
1: What is that going to be? How many of those pieces are melodies that people know? But of those, how many arrangements are arrangements that are the ones that we've been singing or maybe it's time for a new arrangement? So there's different levels of familiar. For example, we're doing an arrangement of Jingle Bells. And everyone knows Jingle Bells. It doesn't matter what your religious background is, everyone knows Jingle Bells. However, we're doing a version that is, first of all, a very familiar one to our audiences. We've done it several times over the years. It was commissioned for us or by us many years ago. And secondly, it's, it's odd. It's uh, really complicated, it's not straightforward in any way whatsoever. Particular case we're giving them familiarity in terms of the melody and in terms of the fact that it is one of the ones that we've tended to do but musically speaking it doesn't sound like any jingle bells that you, you would ever sing as a kid or something like that. So I have to, you know, kind of make those decisions, like how familiar and in what ways. And then I have to decide, okay, what is the flow of the concert? Is there a particular theme? Are we doing, this one is Holidays Acapella, so it's not just, you know, all Christmas or all Jesus, baby Jesus all of the time. You know, we're we're doing lots of different kinds of music with lots of different kinds of texts. So for this concert, we have Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany, which are three distinct seasons in the church year, but in terms of popular knowledge of religious calendars, they're all basically in the same family. And then we're doing Hanukkah music, so how do I create a thread to make sure that all of that sort of goes together? Is there a timeline? Do I tell the story of the birth of Jesus from the beginning to the end? Or is it really more about making sure the flow, the musical flow, works? Mm-hmm. And if the timeline isn't chronological, then it doesn't really matter. And then the other thing is I have to say, okay, the audience needs to hear some new things. They, you want to hear familiar things, but you also want to be you know, provoked or um, surprised by new things. And Chicago A is known for that, for giving audiences this combination, especially in their holidays concerts, of very familiar, very kind of comforting, you know, musical comfort food, combined with interesting things that nobody's ever heard before. So we have several pieces on the program that have not been sung by Chicago a cappella in the past, and some I, I would venture to say have not been sung in Chicago in the past. They're tunes that I found elsewhere in kind of researching the program and some were written specifically for our ensemble you know so if you're not from the Chicago acapella family if you've not been coming to our concerts you'll hear music you've never heard before. What would be an example of something that that's
0: new this for this performance?
1: Well one of them is a piece called O Viridissima by Janneke van der Velde and it's not by any means an obscure piece it's about 30 years old at this point but it's certainly not anything the Chicago a cappella has ever done. It's written for three percussionists and choir, including some soloists uh, in the middle. And since we're a cappella, we don't usually use instruments. It's very, very rare that we use instruments. So I have the three percussion parts being done vocally. I don't know anybody who's done this piece in Chicago. It it certainly could have been done, but it's not uh, been done by our group. Another example, Is a piece by John Scott called "There Is No Rose of Such Virtue," which is based on a really old medieval English text. And John Scott died not too long ago at a young age, I believe he was in his fifties. This piece was unpublished. I found it on a recording of a group that I like called New York Polyphony and I poked around and I asked around and I said you know do you have a copy of this music because I can't find it anywhere and they said well it's unpublished and you'll have to get permission from uh, John Scott's widow if you want to be able to do the performance and so I did I contacted her and she said of course you can perform it so the person from New York Polyphony uh, Jeffrey Williams sent me a copy of the music since I had permission so this piece is you know, yes, it's been recorded, but since it's unpublished, really nobody knows of it. So, you know, we get to do some really interesting things. The goal isn't necessarily t- to be novel for its own sake, it's to give audiences new experiences and to kind of enrich their lives with music that's perhaps a little bit less familiar and a little bit less, how should I say, it's just, it's not that it's not traditional, it's that it's not what one would typically expect going to a, a holiday concert, you expect the standard sing along and a you know a jingle bells and a frosty the snowman and things like that and you don't necessarily expect um, pieces that are unpublished on medieval texts by a very famous choir master organist John Scott you know so we try to give them a little bit of everything. From your experience, what's like the crowd pleaser this time of year? That's a tough one. Um, for the holidays concert, there's a couple I think that we've done several times that people always like. One of them is the. Glory to the Newborn King, which we've done a few times over the years. I want to say, I think I asked about this, and it's been three or four times we've sung this one, and it's a spiritual arranged by Moses Hogan. It's fun. It's energetic. it's got a a layered gospel choir style middle section it's it's a lot of fun another one that we have a dreidel song that we've sung several times and it's very playful there's several things i would say of the numbers on the program there's probably five or six that we've done several times, in that our regular audience members will immediately settle in and, and, you know, smile as soon as we start to sing.
0: And since it's an acapella concert, obviously there's
1: no instruments involved,
0: but another unique aspect of Chicago acapella's programs is there's no conductor.
1: Well, this group does one thing that is different from all of the other things that I do in my life. They don't have a conductor. So they have somebody who is a music director for a particular program, in this case me, and that person is outside of the ensemble and makes sure that everything's working properly, everybody's balanced, everything's in tune, all the notes are right, etc. But then when it comes time for the show, there is nobody conducting. And that's been that way since the very beginning. When Jonathan Miller founded the group, he actually did the music directing from within the group. He sang and also led led the performances, but he didn't necessarily wave his arms around like a typical choir concert um, would have a a conductor out front. So because of that you have to prepare, the singers have to prepare in a very different way. They don't get cues from somebody up in the front, they don't get that certain information about the tempo and how, how it's speeding up, how it's slowing down, how it's getting louder and softer. They have to do that all amongst themselves as a group. So the kind of singing that's required is similar to some of the other things that we do outside of the group. You know, we we sing a lot of choral music in, in a lot of organizations or for a lot of organizations around town, but in this particular case, what makes a difference different is that there is no conductor.
0: As someone like that doesn't know anything then about how that works, what's the benefit of not having a conductor?
1: Well, I think it's just a little bit more personal in terms of the way the group communicates with the audience because there isn't a barrier of somebody with their back to the audience between the audience and the singers. So you don't get that kind of visual distraction and you also get a, a different kind of focus among the singers because the singers really have to be fully aware of what is going on, not just in their own part but in all the other parts as well. And sometimes when you have a conductor, they, they help fill in those gaps. But in this kind of ensemble, everybody is, has much more ownership of their own, their own musical expression you have to be more engaged and so I think what the audience gets is first of all the lack of distraction from a a physical barrier with a person in the middle but also they get a more committed and direct experience from the singers. That's Benjamin Rivera. He's the music director of Chicago
0: Acapella's Holidays Acapella program, which continues next weekend with concerts on Saturday, December 17th at Wentz Concert Hall in Naperville, and Sunday, the 18th at Nichols Concert Hall in Evanston. There's also a Hanukkah concert tonight in Wilmette. You can find more information at ChicagoAcapella.org. And a quick reminder, if you listen to The Arts Section every Sunday right here on WDCB, make sure to check out the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want. And also a reminder, if you ever want to reach out with a question, comment, or a suggestion, you can reach me at gzydek at wdcb.org. That's my email. Or you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at OnAirGary. And you are listening to The Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely now are the Dueling Critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Morning,
2: Gary. Gary.
0: Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice universe has expanded in recent years with the Christmas at Pemberley series. Playwrights Lauren Gunderson and Margot Melkon have crafted a trilogy of plays using Austen's popular characters, which are in the public domain. What's being billed as the final chapter in this series, Georgina and Kitty, Christmas at Pemberley, just opened at Northlight Theater. And Carrie, we'll start with you. I don't mean this in a a derogatory way, but this is uh, essentially elevated fan fiction.
2: I think it is a truth universally acknowledged that a theater in possession of a good franchise must keep that franchise going (laughs) as as long as they can. And uh, yes, there is certainly a, a fan fiction element to this. But I think that it also—it's it, written by Lauren Gunderson, who's a well-known, very often produced playwright, and Margot Malcon. They understand the the, the Austen universe. They understand the appeal, which is that there's still, despite you know the the beautiful costumes and the drawing room settings and the elevated language, there's also a very strong contemporary hook with the idea of women finding their own voices away from the need to be to be well wed, as it were. Um, in this case, Georgiana and Kitty, for those who do not recall from Pride and Prejudice, Georgiana is the younger sister of Mr. Darcy. Kitty is the youngest of the five Bennett sisters. They've struck up a great friendship over the years. Uh, Georgiana is a very accomplished uh, pianist and is studying music in London. If, you, if you've if you read the book, you may recall that Georgiana had a brief, unfortunate, but fortunately averted um, attempted elopement with the uh, dastardly Mr. Wickham. He does not appear in this show, but his uh, apparently soon-to-be ex-wife, Lydia, <laughs> one of the other uh, Bennett sisters, is on board. Um, so it's really about Georgiana and Kitty, the men who take interest in them, and the interest they have in each other. So, they have, so though they are not literally sisters, they form a sort of sisterhood. But, and the other Bennett women are kind of, you know, in their orbit for this. I thought it was completely charming, um, not heavy, but uh, well acted, and under Marty Lyons' direction, I thought, you know, very, very adeptly handled. What did you think, Jonathan?
3: Well, I also enjoyed it a great deal, and I would just like to add that, as, as Gary, as you said, this is the third and presumably the last in the mm-hmm. series of plays which are set at the Christmas season at Pemberley, which is Mr. Darcy's estate, you know, where he and the, the former Elizabeth Bennet uh, live together. And all the assorted Darcy's and all the assorted <laughs> Bennet's sisters, attached and otherwise, gather at the estate every Christmas. So that's the excuse, as it were, the framing <laughs> device for sure. building these three plays. And the women, and it certainly is a female-dominant series of characters, uh, you know, they plan out the loves and lives of everybody <laughs> in, in the course of the Christmas time. Now, in this, the final version, they actually extend the, the franchise, if you will, uh, to 10 years beyond the final events in The Pride and the Prejudice. So we're going The Pride and Prejudice. So we're going, we're going pretty well out. Uh, it's 10 years off. Uh, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that this episode nicely marries off both Kitty and Mary Bennett. It frees Lydia uh, Mm
1: -hmm.
3: from the never-seeing, ne'er-do-well Mr. Wickham, and it sees sees Kitty and Georgiana, an admired pianist, as you said, Carrie, she sees them get together, join forces to found England's first musical society for women. Now, that's all you really need to know about the plot, (laughs) especially if you know the source characters, although there are two new Non Jane Austen gentlemen in this one to provide love interest, but uh, you know I liked it. You liked it. The most impressive accomplishment to me is the author's mastery of Jane Austen's style yeah. in their witty and intelligent and often satirical, pointed dialogue. They have created a true comedy of manners in the best tradition of theater.
2: Yeah. Uh, I thought one of the great, there's this great moment early on where Lizzie, who is, of course, married now to Mr. Bennett, I mean, uh, Lizzie Bennett, who is married to Mr. Darcy, pardon me, uh, they're having a disagreement, and she makes a point, and much as it pains him, he looks at her and he says, perhaps you are right. (laughs) It's so hard for him to say that. And, of course, there are always going to be complications, and in this case, it's a, a mislaid letter that gets into hands that it should not be, uh, that, that it would be best to have it not found its way to. And someone says, there's always a letter. And that is always true. <laughs> there's always some sort of overheard conversation or misunderstanding that, you know, throws a spanner in the works for a while. But fear not, everything ends as it should. Um, I just thought it was, a, I, I just found it thoroughly delightful. I have to say, I have not seen the other two in the series, but uh, as uh, Kelly Kleiman, our uh, erstwhile dueling critic who reviewed it for the Chicago Reader said, it's kind of nice to imagine that the other segments are all happening perhaps simultaneously, you know,
3: in other rooms. <laughs> so in, in, this, parallel, you, in parallel
2: significative universes, yes. Yeah, so. Right, <laughs> right. I, 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 thought, I thought the entire cast was great, but I have to say, for me, special delight in seeing uh, Andrea San Miguel is Mary Bennett, who sort of—I think in the day they would have called her the Blue Stocking. You know, she's sort of the intellectual, the the, the spectacled bookworm, and apparently she's made—you know—on the verge of making the best match of any of them, and uh, without losing anything of her of her true nature, which is to just be, you know, someone with her nose in a book and rather plain spoken, and uh, just just a completely delightful. Uh, supporting role from her. I'm,
3: I'm glad that you picked her out because I was about to, Andrea San Miguel, as Mary Bennett. She's the most quiet sister, and unless I am, you know, misremembering, mis- mm-hmm. I think it's also the smallest role as written in the play, mm-hmm. and yet San Miguel makes an impression. She makes it memorable while mm-hmm. still being subtle and quiet and, if you will, small, which is a neat trick Uh, But I also have to cite uh, Janice Caraballo and Samantha Newcomb, who are really on top of things, uh, respectively, as Georgiana, Darcy, and Kitty Bennett. Mm -hmm. They, uh, They really spark the show. And I like the new Swain's. The two new (laughs) love interests. Nate Santana is the dashing one, while Eric Hellman is wonderfully comically tongue-tied as the other. And they both work, work perfectly. I agree with you also about veteran director Marty Lyons' elegant and graceful staging. There are gorgeous period costumes by Raquel Adorno and a very handsome setting by Jackie and Rick Penrod, which suggests early 1800s Regency style, as it very well should. So um, it's a good package, if you will. A
2: A good gift tied up in ribbons and fancy paper for Christmas. And, you know, I liked the Georgiana and Kitty relationship very much, especially as it moves into the second act, when they're trying to build this women's musical society which I think you may have mentioned, Jonathan, but they had to do that because women were not allowed into the Royal Academy of Music in these sexist times. So they just thought, well, the heck with that. We'll just start our own society. And Kitty is really, she's not necessarily creative, but she is. I think anybody who's ever done arts administration will love to see how Kitty steps into the spotlight to organize the printing and the fundraising. And at one point, somebody says, She's the water to the mill, and I think that's true. Yeah, that she, there are always these people who are maybe not the creators of the work themselves, but who have just a rare and dogged gift of making the, these dreams come true. And I think that that's a really, really nice aspect of this story that I found quite relatable. Yes,
3: somebody always has to make, make, make it work, make everything, make yeah. the wheels. Keep the the wheels greased, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I wanted to add one note, and I, I mentioned that this is a wonderful comedy of manners, and comedy of manners is based on talk, not on action. And this is definitely a highly verbal play, not one filled with the physical business of farce. So I would advise people to go see this one reasonably well-rested, because you'll want to stay awake and pay <laughs> yeah. attention to this one. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, it doesn't actually revolve around Christmas or celebrate it, but of course that doesn't matter. Right. What <laughs> matters is that it's a smart show, and it combines both the sweetness and tartness in a way
2: that Jane Austen herself would admire, I think. Right. At one point, they uh, you know, the, the fact that they have a Christmas tree at Pemberley is noted, like, oh, isn't that interesting? Because you know that was something that was... A fairly new tradition, and was very much more of a tradition, you know, the Tannenbaum in German households. So they have a tree, but it's just not, you know, flashy, showy. It's just, oh, how interesting. You brought a tree from outdoors, indoors. Okay. <laughs> and I thought that was sort of a nice, a nice touch. So yes, it's not There is a nice carol at the end, there are Christmas elements, but it definitely does not feel like it needs to be a Christmas show, it just happens to fit fairly nicely in that slot, and I'm sure that it's something that Northlight has appreciated having, as I said, this sort of franchise the last few years that they've been able to call upon. It's not Christmas Carol, but sort of in the same period. And um, definitely, you know, an homage, at least,
3: to a great yeah.
2: writer from the, yeah. from the 19th century. Indeed, indeed.
3: We should note, too, that Northlight Theater is proceeding with its plans to build a brand new home in downtown Evanston. Um, we think they've actually broken ground already. With luck, perhaps the 2024-2025 season will open there. Uh, of course, it takes money. So if listeners out there have attended Northlight's work and and appreciate it and know of Northlight's long history on the North Shore, consider a donation, even a small one, which will help them along with this new building project.
0: Northlight Theaters' Georgina and Kitty Christmas at Pemberley continues at the North Shore Center for the Performing Arts through Christmas Eve. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Arts Section. I'm Gary Zedik. I'm here with the dueling critics, Gary Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Really quickly, we wanted to update uh, a piece of theater news. A local theater company recently just got a, a big grant in its efforts to build a new space.
3: Indeed, because you know, Northlight is not the only theater company building a new home. Uh, there are at least three, and one of them, Steep Theater Company, uh, based in uh, Edgewater, Uh, has purchased a new space, a former Christian science reading room and kind of library, still in Etchwater, and they have just received a grant of nearly $3 million, which is an exceptionally large grant, for any performing arts organization, especially a small off-loop theater, it's an exceptionally large grant for anyone to,
2: to get in the city. Who gave that to them? I'm trying to remember. I think I'm it was forgetting. a city grant, as I recall. A city grant, okay. Yeah, city of Chicago. Yeah. And they had a, their former space they rented uh, just by the Berwyn Red Line, and that was closed down, or they lost their lease, I should say, right before the pandemic. So they were you know itinerant and then looking around and happened to walk by this, as you said, Jonathan, the Christian Science Reading Room, Noticed it was for sale and thought it might be, you know, a good footprint and it would also keep them in the neighborhood where they'd already, you know, had roots and had built um, some associations. So I think it's a, you know, it's a a nice happenstance that all of this is coming together to them. They've certainly done some of the best work in the city over their, I think they're in their 21st season now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, So I'm quite happy for them. Yeah.
3: The new location is only two blocks away from the old location. It's still on Berwin. It's now at Berwin and Kenmore, that old uh, uh, Christian mm-hmm. Science reading room. And Steep is already performing in it, though they have not had, uh, they have not begun to do the the real work of gutting right. the space and recreating it as a full fledged theater. And uh, now that they have this large grant, as well as I suppose individual contributions. Um, they will be able to proceed with that. This is a neighborhood theater for me. I can walk to it, which I, which it's, I I, I yeah. love to do. And
2: I think it's great you mentioned neighborhood because I know that in the plans for Northlight as well as I think for Timeline Theater, which is you know in, is in the process of building out their new space, and I think also for American Blues, which is yet another company. A big element isn't just performance space. There's really the idea of having community engagement spaces. Um, Steve did that a little bit in their old space. They had a uh, a little bar right next to the theater called the box car, which they would make available for readings and community meetings as well as a place, you know, to gather for drinks before the show. And I know that that's part of what they're hoping to do with the space that they're building out now. So it's not just about having, you know, a beautiful, beautiful seating and nice backstage facilities. It's also about having, you know, flex use rooms, that they can really bring the community into, whether it's about a show or about other things that are happening, maybe related to the themes of a particular show. So I think that's something that's really just evolved in the last 10 or 15 years in my, you know, in my understanding. I don't know what your experience would have been, Jonathan, but it feels like this is so much more of a uh, a focal point for companies.
3: It is. It is indeed. And the steep space will have whatever you want to call it that communal you know gathering space it's you know it can be more than just a bar and that's right. what it's supposed to be and and indeed some places they call it the education center and, and that's not a euphemism for a bar i mean it's <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> A place for promoting oh, theater Oh, speak for and yourself. That doesn't <laughs> serve any liquor at all, uh, <laughs> if you can imagine. Uh, so Steep is building a new space. Uh, Northlight is building a new space in Evanston. And uh, Timeline, which is making the move from uh, the Lincoln Park neighborhood, where it has been for several decades now, and they are moving up to the Edgewater neighborhood, too, uh, taking over, remodeling a a massive old um, um, uh uh, cold storage facility on uh, broadway uh at uh, at uh, winnemac broadway at winnemac and yeah. um, right next to one of my very favorite chinese restaurants by the way so as sunhua so people <laughs> will be able to have themselves a good meal and then go see a good show but they will have some sort of communal space within that also i haven't actually seen the interior plans for timeline yet but um uh, I'll be able to walk to them, too. That's good. Pretty soon I'll be so lazy.
2: (laughs) Uh.
0: (laughs) And one last thing, Uh, Jonathan, did you want to say something about a recent passing?
3: Before we leave, Gary, uh, Carrie and I wanted to acknowledge the passing of one of Chicago's uh, most senior veteran actors, Danny Goldring, who uh, passed away about two weeks ago. He was uh, 76, and he had been... uh, (laughs) Uh, had some health issues over the last few years. Uh, A remarkable actor, and I realize that most listeners won't know the name Danny Goldring, but I'll bet they would recognize him if they saw him. He did a lot of stage work all all over the city, from the Goodman Theater to small off-loop theaters. He did a good deal of film and TV work, too. Usually, he was a red-headed or, 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 or kind of a strawberry-blonde guy, uh, rugged-looking, tall, usually played uh, sometimes a good guy, sometimes a bad guy, but almost always a character
2: with kind of a rough humor right. edge. There was a, a lovely tribute that Rick Cogan yeah. wrote about him when he was still alive. Uh, this was back when Danny was performing in the short-lived, but I thought quite good, Kelsey Grammer series Boss on Stars, which was about a corrupt and dying Chicago mayor, (laughs) and uh, Goldring played his the the Grammers character's longtime childhood friend who was a cop turned barkeep, and sort of the conscience for the piece. And he really did have a wonderful, craggy face, gruff voice, uh, but by all accounts, just a very beloved actor. I've been reading tributes and received tributes from Everyone, like playwright Brett Nevue, who wrote a play called The Earl uh, at the Red Orchid that Danny performed in for several months. And apparently he would call the box office to get tickets to Red Orchid and use his character's name from The Earl. That was sort of his running joke. I think the last thing I saw him in on stage was in a revival that American Blues did of The Rainmaker back, I think, in 2015 or 2016. And he was in that with Robert Broiler, the longtime, you know, Steppenwolf vet. Just, just lovely, lovely work. And I think you can judge somebody's career, not just by the number of credits on their resume, but by how people reacted to working with him. And it's to me, you know, a, a great tribute that nobody seems to have had a bad word to ever say about Danny Coldry.
3: No, Um He really
2: did choose to stay in Chicago. I think he was in New York for a while working on a soap in LA for a couple of years, but you know, he really wanted to build a life with his, with his wife, Diane Dorsey uh, in yeah. Chicago. And they, and they did that. Um, and that's, that's admirable.
3: And Danny was part of the theater scene here for uh, 50 years, going back to the very early 70s, or even a year or two earlier than that. So he is one of those original off-loop people who helped build Chicago Theater into what it is today and put it on the map. And a hell of a nice
0: guy. And on that note, we'll say goodbye. Carrie. Jonathan, thanks so much.
3: Oh, you're welcome. You're most welcome.
0: You're tuned into WDCB, this is the Arts Section, I'm Gary Zydek. What would you say to your 15-year-old self if you could write to them? That's the premise behind Chicago-based author Sophie Lucido Johnson's new book, Dear Sophie, Love Sophie. Part memoir, Park graphic novel, the book offers a sometimes sharp reminder of the insecurities and awkwardness that went along with being a teenager. But Dear Sophie, Love Sophie also highlights the earnestness and sincerity that often exists within young souls. When she's not working on book projects, Lucido Johnson is a cartoonist for The New Yorker and a teacher at the Chicago High School for the Arts. I recently caught up with her at the Humboldt Park neighborhood-based school to learn more about her approach to creating a graphic memoir. You write in the, the prologue uh, about the origins of what turned into to this book, and you had started writing letters to your younger self. Was there something that, that sparked this idea to, to start writing to your younger self?
4: Yeah, I think that I am a part of a large tradition of people who have journaled as kids. And when we journaled as kids, I don't know, we, maybe we were thinking, someone will read this someday. I don't know who, some some phantom person would read it someday. And then you realize as you grow older, oh, no one's ever going to read this, ever. This is just something I made as a child that will sit in a dusty basement. So I think one time I went home for Christmas and thought, oh, it would be fun to read these and, and write back to this person. Maybe that would give her some kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> closure with her with her writing. And then later, someone found one of my journals at, a, at my college and I got to read from it and, and I thought, you know, I think there's a lot in these books I, and I, I don't think I'm alone. I think one of the things that I hoped to do with the project was like inspire other people to check out their journals and write back to themselves or think about what child them might have to say to adult them.
0: I was curious how often you were revisiting your journals. Was it something you had really forgotten about or did you kind of periodically check in with them?
4: I just feel so like arrogant and, or, arrogant's not the right word, like ego, egocentric. Because yeah, of course, I, I would read them back all the I still read them back all the time. I love to just like sit on my big red chair and just take one off the shelf and read it back and partially like yes a lot of it is because our lives are very interesting to us We, we like our own lives a lot and then part of it is that things that were a very big deal a very long time ago no longer feel like a big deal which can help right now with things that feel like they're a very big deal because there's some future you that's looking back and saying well that really wasn't anything that was hard, but it's it's okay. So yeah, no, I, I look at them such an embarrassing amount and know, know my younger self pretty well. <laughs>
0: I never journaled or kept a diary, but after reading your book, I wish I had because I have these like scraps of memory. But what I do have is, because uh, I came of age right when like email was coming to be a thing. So some nights i I have gone down rabbit holes where I read my old emails and it's so cringy. <laughs> yeah,
4: absolutely. Uh, me too. I, I think, in, and then in my journals during that era, a lot of those AIM conversations I printed out or slash, I don't know, yeah, emails. I, I just found one on the ground before I came here today that must have been from 1999 or 2000. And I have no idea what diary it goes in, but it was so neatly cut out and folded and placed in the diary. And yeah, it was cringy. It was cringy. It was a friend telling me I was pretty. I guess I needed that at the time.
0: (laughs) One thing that stuck out to me is I think it's a cartoon with writing where you talk about that first love and so finding my emails to my first like real partner that like it's so earnest
4: yeah. oh that's so sweet I want to ask you all about that now I guess that's like not what we have time for but I want to hear all about like your emails to your first love that sounds that sounds so but, uh,
0: uh, your cartoon kind of like that you know made me think of that because there is nothing like that first time you really connect with somebody and you feel like this is this is your person, <laughs> Yeah, it's like strange to look back at that person. What, uh, when did the idea of like turning these letters to yourself, when did you start thinking about turning it into a book?
4: I wrote a piece for long reads that was about um, like finding other people's diaries at thrift stores. I always buy them. I have like a huge giant collection of other people's diaries and I, I love them just as much as I, I love mine, I, maybe more, no. It's, 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 it's about equal. I love them as much. They feel like such treasures you find, you know, mm-hmm. I really like when people write their goals down or like, you know, or just trying to, I like high school diaries the best. I guess I work at a high school makes sense. I, I like that age where you're, everything seems so important, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's really just about like dating. It's just only about like getting kissed or whatever. And and after I read it, there was like a lot of response to it. I found like, oh, there's all these people who have kept their diaries or who are interested in their diaries or their journals. And this is maybe like lucrative. And it's always sort of been kind of a, it's like belittled or diminished as this lesser art form. Like in fact, just talking to you right now, I feel a little sheepish, like, oh yeah, I wrote about my diary, but also like, what an amazing thing that humans do that we like make these marks and we want to be remembered and we want to keep track of things and other species don't do that and it's actually kind of tremendous and I, there isn't always a lot of you know writing about that. It felt like something to sort of um, I, I wanted to like explore more and pay homage to so and it felt like there was some response in that moment when when I wrote the Long reads piece
0: and then when you started the the project of, of turning it into a, a book, did the idea of what this could be like? Did that evolve over the course of you creating it?
4: Absolutely, yes. I think um, I think I was pretty mean to myself in the beginning. I just beat up young Sophie in mean response letters that I was so you know embarrassed about the things she cared about. And then over time, I started to I don't know I, it intersected with like reading a lot of books about trauma and like you know how your body holds on to old stuff and it all felt like related it, like you have you are not a totally different person than you were as a child you're still holding on to stuff that you don't realize you're holding on to and it became sort of an opportunity to explore that it is a pretty earnest book, but then I I I think that if other people do that kind of work, it 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 creates more peacefulness. I, I think a lot of us kind of need to to spend some time doing that kind of work. So it turned into more of a more of a therapy book, less of a humor book over time. And I'm I'm a New Yorker cartoonist, so I think I tend towards like wanting to make jokes about things and there were some things that instead of making jokes about them I uh I, yeah I was earnest and it's easy to make fun of earnestness and so I <laughs> there's like if it, it's a vulnerable it feels tender the whole project feels tender I don't know I, like I feel grateful to have had the opportunity to make it and there's a part of me that's like oh I don't love that this is out there for people to like read and judge what was I thinking <laughs> but it is so that's that's that
0: going through this did that Did you open yourself up to some emotional, did you take like an emotional toll on yourself?
4: (laughs) Uh, I took an emotional journey, certainly. I definitely like went down a path, Um, but I think it was pretty healing. I think I, I recommend this task to people. I think it's really helpful to look at some things about yourself that maybe you feel shame around or, wow, I didn't, I don't like that I did that or that I was that person. I was like a very sad youth, like always like, oh, woe was me. Oh, you're so sad. So very melodramatic. And uh, it's. It, I think there are reasons for that. It's nice to look back at that and sort of say, maybe that was okay. Maybe that was like what I needed to be in that moment instead of try to like shove that mm-hmm. version of myself away. I don't know if that feels true for you too.
0: What are you hoping the the readers that pick it up take away from it?
4: I hope that, what I really hope is that it creates more conversations across, I think in the, I think I call it timescapes, like more conversations across timescapes where we can communicate with our past selves. Maybe not even just our past selves, but like this idea of inherited trauma or like things that have to do with your ancestry just where you're taking care of a version of yourself that you might not let out very often. Um, I hope that the exercise like prompts people to, to do some version of this for themselves.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Chicago-based author and cartoonist Sophie Lucido Johnson about her new book, Dear Sophie, Love Sophie. And then, just a, a side note, you mentioned you're a cartoonist and your work sometimes appears in this little publication known as the New Yorker. How do you make a, a one panel comic funny?
4: <laughs> I have a writing partner. We, so our process is like sit for an hour each and we both write just a huge list of jokes for the hour. Um, and then I'm saying an hour, but it's usually two because the way you write a joke is you sit still and you wait for a joke to come onto your face um, or like into your brain or to just sort of pass by the window and you're like, oh, there's a joke and you grab it. So you have to be very quiet. It's very similar to bird watching in that way. Like you really have to wait and then the joke will come and then you have to coax it onto the notebook. And then my partner and I uh, sit down together and like polish the jokes out. So we have a list of like 50 jokes and oh how could we make this one shorter how could we create more visual interest and um and then i we pick five of each of ours because you have to submit a batch of 10 every week to the new yorker and they will maybe buy one of them (laughs) if you are very lucky and and so i draw them because she doesn't like to draw but she lets me take more of the money so that it feels fair to me
0: (laughs) and what initially brought you to Chicago, you mentioned uh, New Orleans.
4: I got my Master's of Fine Arts uh, at the Art Institute of Chicago where they have an interdisciplinary writing program which was awesome, like so awesome. I got to take a class from the comic book artist Chris Ware. He only ever taught one class ever in his life and I just like happened to be there at that moment and it was just amazing and a lot of good comics artists who work at SAIC. So I was taking a lot of writing classes and they were great but then taking the visual arts classes on top was just profoundly awesome there's so few programs like that in the country and chicago has one that's rad there's another writing teacher here who also did that program so it's a cool program
0: i've had chris ware on the the show a couple times and he's probably <gasps>
4: he he's
0: probably like the nicest human i've ever met and yes. like self-deprecating to a point.
4: I know. I have him tattooed on my arm right oh, there. Is that him? Yeah, that's him. And then that's Linda Berry because he had her come in. And I just, I, I agree. He's incredible. And when I showed him this, he said, I will pay you to get that removed if you want. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I know we're, we're talking about your latest book that, that just came out. What's next? Are you able to, to share what your next project is?
4: Yeah, I, that's a good question. I am, um, I'm doing a newsletter right now. I'm in, I'm, to build that. It's like a substack called You Are Doing a Good Enough Job. And it's about, um, it's for people who beat themselves up. So, you know, there's a theme here. A lot of lot of people <laughs> who hate themselves, like, how can we heal? <laughs> yeah.
0: I think I saw one of your uh, your cartoons. It's like a teenager, he tells his mom to subscribe to his newsletter.
4: Right, yes. I wrote that one. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that is, that. I hope that isn't my daughter. But if it is, I will totally read her newsletter.
0: Well, Sophie, thanks so much for making time to talk with me.
4: Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: That's Chicago-based author, cartoonist, and educator, Sophie Lucido-Johnson. Her book, Dear Sophie, Love Sophie, is available everywhere books are sold. And you can find her cartoons in The New Yorker and on her website, sophielucidojohnson.com. Christmas, Christmas. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to The Art Section.
5: You're awfully lucky, Mrs. Walker. Lovely little girl you have here.
1: Thank you. And Susan's the reason I asked you to drop down. She's a little confused, and I thought maybe you could help to straighten her out. I'd be glad to. Would you please tell her that you're not really Santa Claus? That there actually is no such person?
5: Well, I'm sorry to disagree with you, Mrs. Walker, but not only is this such a person, but here I am to prove it.
1: No, no, no. You misunderstand. I want you to
6: tell her the truth. Uh, what's your name?
5: Chris Kringle. I'll bet you're in the first grade. Second.
0: This is Maureen I'm O'Hara, Natalie Bruce. Wood, and Edmund Gwynne. That's Chris t- Kringle. Kringle. And the original Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Unabashedly it's sentimental, true. the nineteen forty seven film has won over generations of fans. Here's a funny bit of trivia. 20th Century Fox actually released Miracle on 34th Street on June 11th of that year. Interesting choice to release a holiday movie at the beginning of summer. Despite the odd timing, the film was a massive hit. By the end of the year, Lux Radio Theater produced an audio version of the movie with all the original actors reprising their roles. The radio adaptation debuted on December 22nd, 1947.
5: I know you're in capable hands with the cast of tonight's great screenplay, Miracle on 34th Street, from my home studio, 20th Century Fox. We are particularly gratified to have the original stars of the picture, Maureen O'Hara, John Payne, Edmund Gwen, and Natalie Wood. Miracle on 34th Street takes up a question as old as the spirit of Christmas itself. Is there a Santa Claus? And answers that question very happily. This Christmas week, when most of us think of Lux Flakes as a friendly gift, I'm in the position of thanking Lux Flakes for a friendly gift. The opportunity to be with you at this Christmas presentation through the magic medium of radio. But I imagine many of you housewives feel grateful also, if for different reasons. Lux Flakes, I'm sure, hold out to you the gift of greater leisure, longer life for your precious fabrics,
0: Gotta love the Lux ad copy there. Now St. Charles-based Steel Beam Theater is recreating some of the magic of that broadcast with a new live stage version of the radio play. If you've never seen a live radio play, it's a lot of fun. Lots of sight gags and funny sound effects. Audiences for this production will be transported to 1947 to get an up-close look at the drama taking place on and off the mic during the fictional broadcast. I recently caught up with some of the people behind this new production.
6: We have been around for just over 20 years now.
0: This is Katie Early, Steelbeam Theater's managing director and the director of this production of Miracle on 34th Street. I sat down with her inside the company's theater, which is located in a historic building on North Avenue in downtown St. Charles.
6: The building itself, from what I have discussed with the St. Charles History Museum, our building is over 100 years old, which is evident when you walk into the theater, you can see the exposed stonework. It's not even brick. They're just actually carved stone. And so we have, the building is, is it definitely has an energy to it and a, a lot of um, charm. I think everyone that walks in the door, they always say, oh my goodness, it's so it's so charming in yeah. here. It's such a, it's just a wonderful space. I just love it.
0: The history of the original Miracle on 34th Street radio play goes back 75 years.
6: As far as the history of the, the of it's a wonderful life and uh, Miracle on 34th Street goes It's a Wonderful Life was produced um, on the radio. So the year after that, they wanted to do something. It was the Lux Radio Hour, and they wanted to do something that had that same kind of feel, but they obviously didn't want to do It's a Wonderful Life again. And since they had this wonderful new movie called It's a Miracle on 34th Street, they decided to put that one up, and they brought in the original stars. So they had Maureen O'Hara, Natalie Wood, and they condensed the movie into an hour, so they took out a couple of bits that maybe would only have made sense in, in, a, in a visual setting. And they added a couple of different commercials for the Lux Soap Company. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. So to, to set the stage uh, for your production, the audience is seeing what's happening the night of this live radio play in 1947?
6: So I think it can be done uh, in a variety of ways. The way that we decided to do it um, was that I wanted to make sure that the people that were playing these characters in the radio show, that the audience knew that they were also people, that they were People that were that are in this 1948 world, and they are a starlet and a leading man, and a um, the starlet's assistant, and these kind of kooky radio DJs that were working at the station, and um, just so there's an intro, a pre-show period where it's these these people coming into the radio station in order to work on miracle on 34th street and then there's an ending that kind of caps all that off and closes out not just the the characters from miracle on 34th street but it closes out the story of these characters who came into the radio station that day to do their job and so i think that there are other ways that it can be done i know in the past radio shows that i've seen they they are basically just reading the um, the the radio show from 1930s 1940s some 1950s probably but we decided to go a little bit of a different way so the beginning of the show is memorized um, and then the the part when they get into Miracle on 34th Street it is these characters playing these other characters and that part is the part that's scripted. But there is quite a lot of movement for it being a quote unquote reading because these people that are playing these characters are still these people. So they're standing up to go get a cookie. They're you know chatting around the water cooler. But there's a, quite a bit going on in addition to Miracle on 34th Street happening.
0: As a radio guy, one of the things I'm always interested in is, is the, uh, the Foley sounds because now everything, you can just like pull up a computer and you get every sound imaginable, but in the forties for something like this, they would hire somebody to, to do all the sound effects.
6: Yes, absolutely. So we have three people that do our, our Foley effects. Um, we do have kind of a, it's a, like a practical soundboard that was built for steel beam. Um, that has a bunch of different wires on it. We also use other things that could potentially have been used back then, like we have a pair of blocks that we um, we click together um, for different sounds, or um, those are also used as the gavel for the judge in during the trial scene in Miracle on 34th Street. Um, we have one of our actors who kind of just runs around the stage on different parts of the stage to make it sound like there is a, a little girl um, running around an empty house, basically. Not to give away the ending <laughs> of Miracle on 34th Street, but I think people are probably familiar with it. Hey,
0: if you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I recently visited the set of St. Charles-based Steel Steelbeam Theater's Miracle on 34th Street radio play production.
7: We have our phone bell right here, if you'll just listen. To that. yeah, It's feeling a little sick right now. That's
0: <laughs> <I'm gonna> <laughs> we also have a
7: buzzer. So that's when Doris is making her entrance to uh, wanting to get into her apartment. She does wanting to get into the apartment. She just bangs on that.
0: This is Andy Buell. He acts in the production and is also one of the Foley artists that's creating the sounds on stage.
7: We also have our uh, doorbells. I think the dude might see you. And also if you wanted to get into the door twice. There it is. <laughs> and um, now we also have a couple of things that aren't on the board. Uh, we have here a little small music box here. It's kind of low right there. But just plays, uh, well, wish you a Merry Christmas. We use that as we go into the uh, department store and the toy department, but we also use it at the end of the show to give it that kind of like little, little
0: fanciful ending right there, right? Okay. Did you do research? Is this like actually how they would do these fully? Uh, most of this is I think
7: was flying by the seat of our pants here. I think that might have also been the case with the people when they were originally trying to do radio uh, stuff in radio. Because it's like, okay, how do we make a sound that sounds like this? For example, for the whole thing for also another thing we have here. Because this whole thing is set up on like this old desk right now. So what we were thinking about, okay, we need to think of what can we do for like a slamming door. There it is, there's the door that we have on the drawer of the table right here. So that's really kind of like what they were doing. It was a lot of trial and error. It's like saying, okay, how can we find a sound that gives
8: the idea to the audience of what exactly is happening?
0: Paul Anderson has the all-important role of Chris Kringle.
8: Uh, When Chris Kringle is visiting Mr. Sawyer. Oh, right, so we also have
7: these two wood blocks right here.
8: So uh, how about you deliver that line?
7: The only way to handle a man like you is this. All right, that's that's the sound of his cane hitting him on the head right there. And then it's and partly is also helped by the act of the selling of the actor. So the actor when they are going, "Oh my name, my head, oh, oh, oh. So and also we have some other we also let's see little taking a look what else we have on the desk. We also have
8: some of the jing, some jingle bells right there. The thing that you do is when somebody's running through a house. Oh,
7: yes. This is near the ending right here. So we're standing on this like raised platform that's just a little bit above the stage here moving like, run, and then they sort of just running in place to get onto this step, and right. then I go up to here. So if I'm running on this lower step here, it kind of sounds like I'm running into the house, but when I'm up here on this step, on this, like, carpeted area, it sort of sounds like it's further away and a little bit muffled, so it sounds like it's on the second floor. So we actually got kind of, kind of interesting reactions from the audience when they're, like, looking at me and seeing, like, wait a minute, what is he doing running in place? It's like, oh, he's running, it's the girl running around the house, and that sort of helps create that. Or when we've got the uh, mailman coming in to deliver all the letters for Santa Claus. I have to make it a little bit more like heavy, heavy heavy-footed here. So it's right this way, right this way, right this way. Uh, This this is the gavel. Oh yeah, so the wood blocks we used for the uh, hitting over the head bit. Ow, ow, ow. We also used them for the gavel here. Order, order. So basically, it's like, like what you're saying, if this was like what it was like, for Foley artists back in the day in early radio, I'm thinking that they were just, it's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of trying to figure out what works best for the scene and what you're trying to create.
0: It's what gets the biggest reaction from the audience.
7: Uh, well, I, th- <laughs> I, th- <laughs> Running I think yes. I think <laughs> I think we did a case. I think we did get a good reaction from uh, one time when we did that oh, bit that with the with the hit it. over the head because especially when it's sold when uh, when it's sold when Mr. Sawyer sells it, it really works right there because I think that's part of the great thing about these about all this is doing it, a show like this in front of an audience is it lets the audience in on the joke because it's not just because if you were just listening to it on the radio at home, they would be like saying, oh oh, there's that noise and there's that noise. When you see it, your brain is like
0: processing it different than if you didn't see how the sound was yeah. being made yeah
7: that's part of it right there and i think and that's part of the thing because it gets it gives the audience to have to think about it in a different way because already they're thinking about the show in a different way because they may be used to seeing it on a screen and seeing the actors that have performed them but to do it this way it kind of gets your brain working in a different direction and gets a whole new appreciation for the show
5: every one of these letters is addressed to santa claus the post office has delivered them Therefore, the post office department, a branch of the federal government, recognizes this man, Chris Kringle, to be the one and only Santa Claus.
0: So, Does Kris Kringle have to wear a, a Santa suit for the radio play?
8: Uh, no, I do, wear, uh, I do wear a Santa hat. He has a hat. He has a hat right here. And, he and for you on the radio, I look exactly like Santa Claus. <laughs> you're telling a story that everybody knows, and, and, and what you're doing is you're trying to get a couple of people who don't believe in Santa Claus to get the spirit, you know, so you, you... And that's kind of the purpose of the whole show is to get everybody kind of warmed up for Christmas. So playing Christmas music, we, we, we play live Christmas music, we have people singing along with it, and and then the, the story itself is to get a little girl to believe
0: in Santa Claus. Right. That scene in the movie where doesn't she, like, tug on the beard, is that in yep.
8: the... Yep, yep. <laughs> Which is why I... I you know i, okay, I started so she tugs on your reel well no but but she could <laughs> steel beam theater's
0: production of miracle on 34th street the radio show continues through december 18th you can find more information at steelbeamtheater.com And that's gonna wrap up this edition of the Arts Section, but remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links to go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.